0: and you know that should be in the public domain it's it's a fundamental like if i if taxpayers are paying for something it shouldn't just be locked away or commercialized or you know hidden away in some on someone's computer and never seen again if it's shared with people then we can get the most benefit out of that
1: Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit, again with Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and today we're talking about the utility of open-source software in the world of public health pathogen genomics. Not only the utility, also maybe touching on some of the the challenges with working on strictly open-source software. Um, So obviously, this is a world we work very deeply in and big proponents of open-source transparent, accessible resources. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? To kick us off on, let's start on the utility side of open source software. Why is it important that uh, software be made open source in the world of public health, pathogen genomics?
0: Yeah, well, like I guess I've, I've written an awful lot about open source software and it's on GitHub if you want to check it out. And I know Kevin, you've uh, dabbled in quite a bit as well. So, you know, we come from a position of strength there and what is most important i think for for what we do is the reproducibility aspect you know you don't have to fiddle around and reinvent the wheel you can just take something someone has uh, done and then just download it and run it and you don't have to worry about restrictions or paying money or licenses it just kind of works and that's the great thing about it so it's reproducible it's free um, you can extend it so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can just say, well, I want an extra piece on top of that, so I'll just add a little piece. You harness a community of uh, of practitioners out there who actually use the software, and so they can contribute fixes, and you can make it even better. So overall, everyone kind of wins, um, and it means that we get better, higher-quality higher software
1: quicker. I, I I love exactly what you're saying because it, it becomes community built. There's a number of practitioners who can access those same resources, not only to just rerun what you've already built, but also build upon it, go in and tinker and find the nuances that might help to either optimize things or add functionality to these different resources, so that it can expand those capabilities. And and reinventing the wheel is a big part of it. There's actually I would say sometimes when you're first getting in the field, even in academia. a a lean to wanting to almost reinvent the wheel. It's like, oh, let me learn how to write my own workflow to do this same task. But often, I think what people quickly find is that, you know, if you are sequencing E. coli for the first time and doing something like whole genome sequencing, you don't have to start from scratch. There are a lot of processes that are set in stone that are best practices for, you know, processing that data, um, ensuring there's quality control Around the raw data going into something like a de novo assembly, and then even you know characterization at the genus, species, or even like subspecies level for E. coli. So you can start at a pretty high rung in the ladder uh, by adopting a lot of open source tools, as opposed to you know maybe trying to write your own de novo assembly, which is a task maybe some people want to take. Um, and, and we still need a lot of the specialized algorithm people. Uh, in the in the world to be able to keep pushing that boundary forward but that's not necessarily the intent i think of most public health laboratories especially what they want to do is capture those best practices and be able to run that uh, analysis in their public health laboratory
0: and we're we're in a field that's actually quite unique in that sense where everything from the beginning was open source if you look at other fields you know people use MATLAB and other closed source software which costs an absolute fortune. You know, for every little component, you have to pay another huge fee. And it really restricts what you can do. And I remember one of the early projects I was doing was um, people have written some stuff in MATLAB and sure, you know, it's cheap for education, but not for anyone outside of education. And the idea was we'll create a binary and then, you know, we'd see, and then you interact with it and you add on stuff and uh, it'll all magically work, but still to actually compile it, you need to purchase a copy of MATLAB which is a quite a huge constraint for people if it costs thousands upon thousands of pounds or dollars. And so that's, that's not a really feasible thing. Um, whereas if you are able to just go and download a compiler, build your own software, interact with it, extend it, it's, it's not an issue then, you know? It's, you can do quite a bit with that.
1: That's a huge part of it, the barrier to access, especially, again, in the world of public health. There's a lot of low-resource settings where they might not have those, you know, thousands of pounds of, of for to buy a license to necessarily access um, resources that they critically need, and, and, and that's I think another component of this is in public health laboratories need is some kind of standardized way to analyze their data, um, and if that standard uh, approach is, you know, cost prohibitive. People are going to just inherently look for other kind of resources and you won't have a standardized approach. And if it's not something that could be replicated outside of that proprietary machine or proprietary software, you, that you are seeding non standardization, especially, you know, of course, we all learn the lessons of COVID 19. We need, or at least there is a huge value in having a standardization of the analytical approach itself, especially when it comes to um, the workflows, how data is actually being. Processed, interacted with, you know, uh, and and interpreted as well. People need to see exactly how that's happening in one country versus the next country as well.
0: And of course, uh, a big key aspect in our field is actually a lot of work is funded by government or funded by charity, and you know that should be in the public domain. It's, it's a fundamental. Like if I if taxpayers are paying for something, it shouldn't just be locked away or commercialized or you know hidden away in some on someone's computer and never seen again. If it's shared with people, then we can get the most benefit out of that. Um, but following on from that, then is the type of licensed uh, open source licenses that are applied, and that that's a bit of a minefield actually, because people have their own different preferences, and some are very very permissive; you can do basically anything you want. Uh, others are very restrictive, and uh, some are very political. So you know, it, it's it's quite a quite a difficult thing to get right. And yet to navigate it, you know, sometimes you need uh, lawyers involved to actually understand, can I actually do this little thing that seems so trivial? Can I, you know, connect these components? I was like, "Mm, maybe not.
1: Oh, man, that is such its uh, its own kind of black, not black box, I was going to say, but like Pandora's box, maybe of like the different licenses, because I feel like every time it's one of those subjects that. I almost completely forget about in terms of the, the nuances between the different licenses until I have to have that discussion again. I have to bring up all the different forms of like, okay, what's GNU versus uh, the MIT versus X, Y, and Z. So how much of that ma- material do you have in your head and ready at the helm to be able to speak about? Like, do you have a preferential license and, and what reason? Okay. Well, yeah, please speak. Uh, on that.
0: Uh, my default is a, a GNU GPL3, right? It's, it's what a lot of people use. It's very, very widespread. It's well thought out. And it just allows you to do quite a bit. And you have to share the source code and things like that, which is perfect. And since some people use it, it means it's very compatible with everything else everyone does. There is some very, very permissive licenses like the BSD license. And that's basically, it's very short and it's do whatever the hell you want, you know, basically. Um <laughs> And uh, there's a few little variants of that as well. So, you know, you go from one extreme to the other. and then the other kind of extreme is, if you use this license, then it kind of infects everything that you use downstream. And it kind of has this uh, off, difficult to use. Uh, it, it's more political, you know? It's So it, it's where people really want to say, okay, if you use my stuff, then all your stuff must be open source. Whereas others are like, well, you, you can use my stuff, but, as long as you don't modify it or or whatever you're fine you know and uh, mm. so it can be get very difficult and you have to be very very careful in some cases some licenses are they can be dangerous um in how they force certain uh things that you don't necessarily want like you know if you if it's a very permissive license uh sorry if it's a, a license that kind of affects other software um license wise then you have to be careful because if you apply dot tiers and then it, it applies servers and others and others and go, you know, it's kind of has this house of cards effect, um, and you have to be so careful.
1: Uh, yeah, that's that's a good like just banner for folks. Like, not all open source is created the same, but there are some nuances between. There are some really commonly used ones, uh, like like the ones you've mentioned, but it's worth being on the lookout. Like, not uh, whenever you're looking to adopt software fork software make modifications a huge protection too against open source software that gets integrated into maybe like a commercial software so like there, there's a ton of restrictions of like hey you know i forget exactly which ones but if you're going to use my open source software it can't be brought into a black box proprietary commercial use case and, and we see that a ton and and i think yes what we're, yeah, um, oh go on sorry
0: yes yeah, so i think one of the big changes has been uh GPL two and GPL three was the TiVo kind of exemption, and so TiVo, uh, you know, back in the day, were um, producing these TV boxes. I think they're still around, but uh, TV boxes, you know, for for recording live TV, and uh, they were using open source software, but they weren't distributing uh, their changes or whatever because it's just a black box, and basically, that's it. You know, um, even though they're getting all the benefits of open source, so then they brought in changes with GPL three to kind of force. Anyone who in that situation to actually share the modifications to share the software, um, which is good. Yeah, but it's then good. some people make it so difficult. Uh, it's like, you know, send me a, a letter to this address and I will post you back, you know, 200 floppy disks with the open source <laughs> software. You occasionally see, you know, uh, kind of websites where it's like, if you, you know, we're open source and you just have to fill in this form with all your details and email on us and we'll, we'll think about it for two weeks. And I know some old papers. They're like, you know, post us a letter and we'll send you back a tape, like you know, these old school tapes, um, which clearly isn't isn't the ideal format. But
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, open source with a you know a, a, quite a gate to get into the door there. Um, but okay, so and I think what we're talking about generally is the the workflows themselves that we. You and I are used to writing in terms of, um, you know, what we're posting on GitHub and, and the repositories. But another conversation is, you know, the, the platforms that coordinate and execute and run these workflows. So now I'm thinking about, you know, resources like maybe CLC, uh, the Genomic Workbench, that is this proprietary suite that gives you access to open source workflows, or something like IRTA in Public Health Canada, that, that came out of a lot of the works up there, or Terra a platform you and I uh, utilize quite a bit. Uh, and other, you know, there, there's a number of these different things. Sakara platform uh, is probably another one worth talking about. How do you distinguish the open source utility in workflows versus platforms? Because all the workflows we talked about, you know, need to be trans uh, accessible, interoperable, all these other things. What's your thoughts on platforms?
0: Yeah, that's a very difficult one because sometimes the platforms are open source themselves but they're so tied to the infrastructure that they're built upon in an institution or whatever, say like, like Terra, that there's no possibility of it ever being run outside of that organization because there's so many components, so much you know, fine-grained configuration and it's that configuration, that data that is critical that you need, but they can't share it for security reasons because it would show uh, their internal um, system structures. And uh, so it, this, this uh, kind of challenge to be able to have platforms say iridize is very open and you can run it anywhere. You know, it's like you drop it in, it runs. And there's a little bit of configuration, but fundamentally it's not tied to one infrastructure. Whereas Terra, it's, it's never going to be run outside the road, you know? And that's not a bad thing. All the software is there, all the major components is there and you can download them, there's long lists of them, you know, so you can actually, you can take components and build bits of your own, but you're never going to run another Terra system itself. And, I, you know, this applies to many other systems as well. You know, some keep them for commercial purposes, they keep them um, private. Others for security reasons, you know, if you want that provenance and you want to say, absolutely, this data has gone through these steps and we can guarantee it and, you know, we've got all this security uh, in place, you know, for, for whatever validation or for hum like uh, protecting into like uh, patient identifiable information, that kind of thing, you know, it. Sometimes there's legitimate cases for it, um, but platforms is a difficult thing and journals do recognize that. So for some journals for software uh, publications, they will allow platforms and software uh, like websites to be kept closed source where uh, even though they're free to use and they're technically not really reproducible.
1: And the reproducibility is the biggest thing. And I think, and we talked about IRDA and it's really built off Galaxy. Galaxy again is one of those things that's super open source. You can create your own instance. You can set up everything outside of you know what's hosted for the general uh, use Galaxy project, which I believe is still over at Penn State or maybe Texas or something like that. But the reproducibility is a big thing, and I think that's what draws the line in terms of the absolute need of the full open source capability of the platform, because something on Secure, Secure Tower or even Terra are really good examples, whereas those aren't necessarily platforms that I can see the open source code, do some Git clone, and I have an instance of Terra, I have an instance of Secure Tower. That's not true, but the workflows I run, I can run outside of Terra, I can run outside of Seteric, Secure Platform, and I can still have that reproducibility. So you still have that level of trans- transparency, interoperability, reproducibility, even though the platform itself that coordinates all the sort of backend data management, security, federated, you know, backend and things like this, um, those are maintained by the platform itself. So I think that is a worthwhile uh, distinction when, when we're discussing this. And um, beyond that, uh, you know, maybe in the last couple of minutes, we could talk about what are the challenges in a strictly open source world uh, when we're talking about public health pathogenomics or even maybe the software world at large? Yeah,
0: I guess, well, one challenge is it's actually quite difficult to make software that is open source and other people can run and download and run anywhere. That's like a, that's an, an enormous challenge. You could talk all day about that, you know, and so you have to have your software, you know, actually built properly so other people can install it and run it and you have to figure out dependencies and things like Conda do help and Docker does help and things like that. So, you know, that that's a huge challenge that a lot of people don't get and... You do occasionally, you'll come across, particularly if you're reviewing software, you're, uh, you come across like people writing these dodgy bash scripts, you know, 500 line bash script that no one could ever possibly run anywhere other than the person's laptop, if you wrote it. And it's a challenge, you know, so it it's a skill to write good quality open source software. And there's, it's not just the software itself, it's the documentation, it's how it's written. It's um, example data, it's, you know, have they thought out how in, data goes in and out, um and is it actually solving the use case that most people want that you do occasionally find where people have got a very bespoke solution and they take in an obscure file format and pump out an obscure file format that no one is ever going to use. Whereas they could just use the standard file formats, you know, in and out, and that would actually make it more usable. And of course more usage means more people will cite it or reference it and or, you know.
1: So that's yeah, that and then also uh the maintenance of those types of resources becomes a big challenge. Not only does, it, you know, the onus is on that first open source developer to put it out. Hopefully it's something that's usable, readable, legible by other developers. Um, but then as soon as public health laboratories start incorporating it, you're hoping there's some level of, you know, continued support and maintenance, which is not always the case. Right. By contributing by no. to the open source world and by being a consumer of the open source world. That's not part of the contract necessarily. So that becomes, and there's not necessarily always grant funding for like, you know, hey, I'm going to support the tool that I built three years ago. You know, it's hard to find, (laughs) I don't know many uh, resources where where they make that the case, but uh,
0: yeah. I mean, supporting software that uh, I wrote nearly a decade ago, you know, and it's in use in production, you know, public health labs use it. But I was only paid to write it originally, not to support it, and I've moved jobs multiple times in that in that period, and it, it's it's a challenge. Most of this, you know, a lot of software is created by academics. Most academics, you know, will move on; they might finish a PhD or postdoc. That's it. There's no onus on them to support it. But yet, then in public health, we need stuff that's in production, and we need it to work, and we need things to be fixed, and that's a challenge, you know, because you need that ongoing support and maintenance, and yet. The people who created it are probably long gone, and that's yeah. you know that's why you have such short shelf lives for for open source software, particularly bioinformatics. You have a shelf life is maybe two or three years, you know, basically the length of a postdoc or the length of a, a PhD. Uh. Yeah,
1: and and I'm gonna, we can end on this point here because um, in that challenge, it really necessitates the public health lab to have somebody or access to somebody in the technical community who can kind of vet this software, like this one's solid, this this is going to be uh, a good use, we can we can incorporate this to our public health lab. So that is its own kind of barrier relative to a proprietary software, you just purchase it, and you know, there's a company behind it, that's going to support it long term, there's agreements in that play. Um, and the last thing I just wanted to say about that specific challenge is where organizations like phage, or, you know, I know in our working group, we're trying to create what are those standards? Can we, as a community of technical practitioners, identify open source software that have been assessed and looked at by different technical practitioners to, again, lower that barrier for people implementing these software? It'll receive this sort of, you know, phage badge or, or badge or check of approval of like, no, this is solid for public health bioinformatics. Um and, and it could be used, even though it's an open source, source that source resource that might not be, you know, maintained long term. But. Uh, as always, we can go on and on with this so we can end things there unless you want to say a final word on open source software and public health.
0: I think we talk all day about this. <laughs> all
1: right. <laughs> Cheers. We'll see everyone in the next one.